Father, we long to be with you, and in your presence, we long for our faith to be sight. In the meantime, help us to be a faithful church. Help us to be an obedient church, and please instruct us and encourage us now, even this morning, as we open our Bibles together and we sit still in your presence. May it just be an ongoing act of worship for, he- for us to hear your word. Help us to willingly obey your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And thank you. You may be seated. Once again this week, we begin in Ephesians chapter 5. As you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, let me tell you about a group of animals uh, that became a little bit dissatisfied with what they were and who they were, and they got their heads together, and they decided that, that the best way for them to learn new skill was to start a school. So these animals formed a school. They decided that they all would take all of the classes so that they could learn new skills. And so they adopted this curriculum of swimming and running and climbing and flying. They all took all the same classes. So the duck, the duck was an excellent swimmer, you know. In fact, he was even better than his instructor at swimming. He could make passing grades at flying. It wasn't really his strength area. But he was very poor in running. Since he was slow, this duck in running, he had to drop out of swimming and he had to stay after school to practice running. This caused his webbed feet to be badly worn so that he was only average in swimming. But average was quite acceptable, so nobody worried about that except the duck. The rabbit now, the rabbit started out at the top of his class in running But he developed a real problem with nervous twitching in his leg muscles because of so much makeup work in swimming. The squirrel, of course, was excellent in climbing, but he encountered constant frustration in the flying classes because his teacher made him start from the ground up instead of from the treetop down. As a result, he developed charley horses from overexertion, and so he only got a C in climbing and a D in running. Now, the eagle, he was a problem. The eagle was the problem child of the animal school, and he ended up being severely disciplined for being a nonconformist. In climbing classes, he beat all the others to the top of the tree, but he insisted on using his own way of getting there. Do you ever stop and think about how God designed you? What your strengths are, what you're good at, What are the things that you are effectively involved in for the Lord? Uh, Have you ever thought about the things that frustrate you and the things that you're not so good at and, and maybe some of you struggle with thinking you're just no good at anything? Well, in our 2020 vision check, we're asking ourselves, are we living effectively? Are we accomplishing what God has for us in the year ahead? I thought it would be valuable for us to take three Sundays. We're following the same format. We're beginning with a quick check in at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. I understand that we're just jumping right into the middle of an extended passage of teaching by the Apostle Paul, but it sets the stage then for a challenge for us as we examine ourselves. Who did God make us to be? As his church, are we effectively serving in our strength areas? Is there ways that we need to make adjustments for effective living for Christ in 2020? 
Then what we're going to do each week, next week will be our third and final message in this three-week eye exam, this 2020 vision check where we, we look around and see how we're living and whether there's ways that we can improve. We will then go to the teaching of our Lord where he tells a story each time to reinforce the instruction of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's let our eyes go down to our text in Ephesians 5. You're supposed to be memorizing it. Has anybody worked on, let me just say that much, I have worked twice at memorizing. I don't have it quite yet, but I'm working at it. By next week, I'll try to have it, not to show off or anything, but I might just quote it next week just to, so the teacher's doing what the students are called to do. How many of you have worked at memorizing Ephesians 5, 15 to 18 this week? Raise your hand. Anybody work on it? I see one. Move them to the front of the class, please. Come on, people. Let's not be so lazy here. Ephesians 5, 15 to 18. Make a note of that. Let's, let's memorize these verses. Here's what it says in the ESV. It says, look carefully then how you walk. That's where we got the title to our little sermon challenge series here. Look carefully how you walk. We explained last week that that's an expression that the Apostle Paul used. That idea of walking is a word for living, living the Christian life, your Christian walk or your Christian life. That word translated look carefully is where we got the idea of checking our vision as we enter the new year. Check your vision. What are you seeing? What are you accomplishing Is there anything we need to do to change? Look carefully how you're living. Your Bible might say, be carefully. In the Greek, that word be means to to look or to observe. Look carefully, be careful how you walk. Your Bible might even say, be very careful how you live. Is what the NIV says. Not as unwise, but as wise. We noted that there was a contrast there, that it's possible to live unwisely, and it's possible to live with wisdom. With wisdom, they contrast. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Another expression of contrast, drunk with wine, the deeds of the flesh, or filled with the Spirit, under the Spirit's control, walking in obedience to the Word of God. Lots of contrast in this passage. Last week, what we let jump out of the page at us was this idea that it was possible to live a foolish life and to end your life and be a fool. And we went to Luke chapter 12, and we looked at a man where God spoke to him at the end of his life. It was cut off short, and God said, you're a fool. Paul said it's possible to live as a fool. In our vision check for the new year, we do not want to live foolishly. We want to live wisely. One of the things that the Apostle Paul says for us to live wisely is to make the best use of our time. That's what popped off the page this time to me. The idea or the challenge from the Apostle Paul is that we are to wisely make the best use of our time, and he says, because the days are evil. I suspect that his first application and the first audience to receive this letter, the Ephesian believers, that one of the reasons the Apostle Paul said, you need to live wisely and use your time wisely because the days are evil, was the idea, almost prophetically speaking, that 
It's not always going to be like it is right now, Ephesian believers. And in fact, he was right. In just a few short years, many of the Ephesian believers suffered persecution. And everything imploded under Rome. And so you have the idea that there is a time frame of living. And the Apostle Paul says, you had better be careful how you live because it might not always be this way. The days are evil. Let's take a little bit of a closer look at that word time, by the way, before we move to our Lord's teaching to reinforce this. So the Apostle Paul says, once again, looking, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Now, it's interesting that in the Greek grammar, and I'm no linguist, but just in studying out this passage, in the Greek grammar, there are at least two words that are translated into English by using the word time. There are two different words in Greek. They're the same word time is used in English. One is a word that might resonate in your ears as a, as with some familiarity. It's, it's a word that sounds something like this in Greek, chronos chronos, chronological, the idea of a tick-tock clock, that you are measuring time by seconds and minutes and day, hours and days and weeks and months. That's chronological time. We are very uh, attuned to chrono- chronos in our Western culture. We pay attention to the time. We punch a clock. The, the, the minutes are ticking. Okay, so that's one word. That Paul's using. Here in this passage, he doesn't use chronos. He uses a word that is pronounced something like this keros. You could spell it if you want, if you care about it K A I R O S. K A I R O S. Keros. It's a word translated into English as time. So when he says, making the best use of the time, it's the idea, keros is, of, of a window of time. It might even be used as a fixed season. Uh, it's the idea of an epoch of time. It is, it is a time and a season that is a window. It's identifiable as a season. In our lifetime, we pass through seasons, don't we? We have our teenage years. It's an identical time of our life. We're not really talking about ticking tock of a clock, although that matters and it is related. But when you say he's in his teenage years, we're measuring time by a season. And then 20s and 30s into 40s, that's a good season. 40s and 50s, it's a good season. 60s and 70s, it's about to be a great season. It's just whatever season you're in. And, and here's this window. That's what he's talking about. And so the idea is you have this life. You're living a season. What are you doing with this epoch of time? What are you doing with this window of time that God has given you? An identifiable time in which you're living. What are you doing with it? Are you being wise? I thought to reinforce this that it would be useful for us to study in Matthew chapter 25 now, where our Lord tells two stories. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. Our text uh, for the remainder of our sermon will be now reinforcing Paul's challenge from a story of our Lord Jesus, where he tells a parable. Now, let's just remind ourselves that when we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, 
we are in a specific sermon that our Lord taught that Matthew recorded. Matthew is filled with sermon sections. And this one will have a familiarity to it when I say the Olivet Discourse. Our Lord went up on the Mount of Olives and he taught and it was recorded. And so when you return to Matthew 24, 25, 26 in there, that is the Olivet Discourse. And one thing that's notable about the Olivet Discourse is that our Lord is teaching about future things. It would be what we would call eschatology or eschatological in nature. It's referring to things that haven't happened yet. And it's futuristic. It's a very difficult passage. I don't know if you recall a few years ago when we made our way through Matthew that uh, this was a struggle passage. What is our Lord talking about here? And how does that apply to the church? Because we found out in the Olivet Discourse that a, a lot of the teaching of our Lord has to do with his nation of Israel and, and, and believing Jews and how it's going to be for them in the last days and some prophetic statements about them and things that they should watch for and how they should live, and yet there's application to his church, that's us, in this parentheses time, uh, this epoch, this time, uh, window of time where God is at work in his church, there's some application. Let's actually let our eyes go up to verse 1 of chapter 25, where he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like And the ESV says 10 virgins. Your Bible might say 10 maidens. It's about bridesmaids. And our Lord tells a story about young women who are attending a bride. There are 10 of them. Five of them had their oil lamps prepared, and five of them did not get their oil in their lamps. And our Lord is teaching about in the last days and in the end times, we want to live with a sense of preparedness. It's about time. It's about the fact that there are some unknown elements of when the bridegroom will come. It's an interesting application to the church. One of the names for the church would be the the bride of Christ, right? The church is the bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5. So we have a groom, and the groom is going to come back. A groom is the Lord Jesus. The groom is going to come for his church. All right, and, and, and so we can make some application here, and there are some good principal applications. And so the first 13 verses of this story begin with the same introduction. Our, our story that Jesus is going to tell, a follow-up story, is also about time, the uncertainty of time, expectation of the arrival, only in our story, not of a groom where some of the bridesmaids were ready and some of them weren't preparedness, be ready for the bridegroom to come. In our story, there is an element of preparedness, but it also has an emphasis on productivity. And the idea is that you need to produce. So when we begin our chapter, our section in verse 14, and what we'll do, if you, if you like to fill in the blanks on the notes, we're just going to run through the passage and fill in the blanks as we go, rather than read the entire passage at one time. Notice in verse 14, our text begins, for it will be like, what is it? That's where it was introduced up at verse 1 of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids, half were prepared, half weren't, get prepared. 
In verse 12, he says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Then watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Be prepared for, then he moves on to his next story, our story of the hour, for it will be like a man going on a journey. Okay, it, the kingdom of heaven, the way this is going to unfold in God's kingdom, it will be like a man going overseas on a business trip or going on a long journey who called his servants and he entrusted to them his property. The first thing we see is that Jesus is telling us a story about, number one, responsibility. Here's a wealthy man. He has riches and resources, and he's going to give them to three key servants. This would not necessarily be unusual. He knows his men. He gives to one five talents. He gives to one two talents. He gives to the other one talent. Now notice that they have a responsibility. It's not their property. It was delegated by the it's it's delegated by the master. So it's not their property, it's the master's property, but that property is entrusted to them. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. So number two, not only is this a story about responsibility and being a steward of someone else's stuff, but it is a story about our ability. Number two, about ability. And the master knows his men, and so to one he thinks, you can handle five talents, to the other you can handle two, to the other you can handle one Let's stop right now and let's just have a word about talents. Okay, what we're not talking about is like playing the piano talent. Whatever it is you can do for your talent. Okay, now there's an application about those kinds of talents. But what a talent is in this passage is really, it's a sum of money. A talent, and if there's study Bibles and phones all across the audience. When I look, for example, I have a bare bones ESV with hardly any commentary. That's what I want for my preaching Bible. It's not a study Bible. It's just a bare bones, large print edition. And so, but there is a note at the bottom of the page. They actually noted that. They said a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. So whatever a common laborer made, this note says that one talent represented about 20 years of those common wages or even a foot soldier for the Roman army. But I noticed as I researched different commentaries that everybody has a different idea of what a talent represented, and it's not an exact science. Nobody knows for sure exactly how much this was. But we do know that it was um, a measure of silver. It was used as a weight. A talent was a weight measure. It was also, you could translate the word out of the Greek talent to silver. A modern translation might say money. And so the idea is there is something very valuable, and the guy who receives five of these, it is representative of material, it is representative of money, it is representative of this world's wealth, and it's a whole lot, the five. 20 years wages, it's significant. The next guy gets two, so that's, excuse me, so if, it's, if one talent is 20 years wages, the first guy gets 100 years worth of wage. The second guy gets 40 years worth of wage, and the third guy gets 20 years worth of wage. So it's a very wealthy master. He's going to be gone. He cannot oversee this, and he wants to delegate this. So there's the responsibility. He does it according to ability, 
And let's read in 16 through 18. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he doubles 100% profit. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, another 100% profit. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Implicit in the, in the passage, without words from the master, we know by the response that there was supposed to be productivity, number three. They were supposed to take, they had the responsibility and the ability to produce. And the master is counting on their productivity to benefit himself and his, his business matters. Notice then in verse 19, it says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. We know from up in verse 14, when Jesus began to tell this part of the story, that he talked about the master going away on a journey. Now in verse 19, after a long time, that would be some chronos time there, after time goes by, He's been gone now for this window of time of those servants came and settled accounts with him. So the thing we see here is that there was an element, number four, of uncertainty in this story. They received this goods of their master and they did not know how long they had to produce. Along with that uncertainty, number four, comes number five, verses 20 to 25, comes an an accountability. There's accountability in this story. Look what it says, verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, and in in the Greek, that word here, it's it's kind of like, looky. Looky here, I have produced five more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Seems like every Sunday I've been quoting or quipping from William Hendrickson from his New Testament commentary series. I really like to read him. He did his own, his own Greek translation, which isn't found in most of the translations, where it says, well done, good and faithful. He says that in his Greek translation, you could easily use the words in English, excellent, wonderful. So when the master comes back, And it's an unknown, undetermined amount of time. He comes. There's now accountability in the life of the servant. The guy with the five who has produced 100% comes to his servant for his moment of accountability. And he shows him that he's increased it by 100%. He's He's doubled it up for him. And the master says, well done, excellent, wonderful. Same thing happens to the guy with two talents. Look what it says. Verse 22, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Excellent, wonderful, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, 
When I was reading this passage, and I don't know if it happened to you, what should trigger in your mind right now is a little thought, and I believe that it's embedded in the way Jesus told the story that you're supposed to think this thought. If the guy with five talents had 100 years' wages, he doubles it up into 200 years' wages. Now, I think this is a good bit of loot. The master describes it as... You have been faithful in a little. Now, don't you think that he says the same thing with the guy with two talents? 40 years' wages turns into 80 years' wages total. And the master looks at him and says, Good job, Jenk. You took care of that little task well. Little task? Are you kidding me? A hundred years' worth of wages. And so I think what we're supposed to think is uh, maybe, maybe in the story you're supposed to understand that there might be something more valuable than a hundred years of wages. And maybe, because it's an eschatological passage, maybe you're supposed to think in the passage that if I'm faithful with my master's goods in this world, maybe there's more to come that far outshines all this nonsense. Maybe, like Jesus taught in other passages, that one of the tests of spiritual responsibility is how faithful we are with monetary, physical, material responsibility. Did you ever realize that? That the way we handle our money is a statement of how much spiritual responsibility God will give us. It's in the New Testament, trust me, and it's in the teaching of our Lord. So when he looks at the guy and he says, you've been faithful in a little You think the guy's teeth might have fell out. But the Lord is telling a story, and what a storyteller he is. Well, let's catch up with where we are. Number one, responsibility. This is a story about responsibility. They had their master's goods, and they had ability, according each according to his ability. There was an expectation of productivity. There's an element of uncertainty in our story. When would the master come back? It was a long time. And then when he does come back, there's accountability. Number five, we recognize in 21 through 23 then, look what he says. He says to that guy, 20, he said, and, and also who had two talents, well done. We notice that there is opportunity for them to produce both The five-talent guy and the two-talent guy clearly set the standard that the opportunity was there to produce. Everybody has their own opportunity at their own level. They they did not have the same amount, but they both produced 100% with what they had. We now move to the part of the story where we see embedded in the story is inactivity. Inactivity. Notice what happens. Verse 23. His master says, well done, to the guy with two. Excellent, wonderful, well done. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. I'm, uh, uh, what a good boy am I. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Isn't that an interesting response? 
He didn't say incompetent. He didn't say, hey, you missed the whole point. He looks at him and he says, you are wicked and you are stinking lazy. If you knew that I can grow corn in a concrete parking lot without even scattering seed and make money off of it, why didn't you at least put the money in the bank? You ought to, verse 27, have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with at least interest. You see, the guy knew that the safest way to preserve something in this era was to bury it in the ground. Banks weren't that reliable. There was corruption. And, and there was the possibility of a bank to fail or the government to transition, and then you lost your money. So he wanted to keep it safe, and people would do that. when they, There's several stories in our Lord's teaching in the New Testament about buried treasure. You can keep it safe that way. Guy goes, finds a, a brush pile and shoves it over on the corner of his farm, digs a hole, buries the money, puts the brush pile back, puts the dead cat on top of the brush pile. Nobody's going to mess with it. All right, just leave it alone. Nobody even knows it there. Nobody would even think that it's there. It's safe. And the master is not impressed. He's not impressed with his caution. He's not impressed with his conservative nature. He's not impressed at all that after this long journey, the guy holds out his hand and says, hey, hey, boss, I have your money. He says, you're wicked and you are lazy. Listen, that's powerful language. That's the incredulity. I needed an ITY word there in response to the inactivity of the servant who did not produce this quality or state of being incredulous. It's the idea of unbelievable. I can't get my mind wrapped around it that you would do this. It was a failure. He was a complete failure. I think the reason that Let's talk about that in a minute. We also notice then next in verses 28 and 29 that this is a story about disparity. Not everybody is equal in the story. So take the talent from him, verse 28. Take the talent from him, the one who did not even earn interest, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There's the disparity. The idea that you don't get to keep what you have, it's going to be given to this guy, and he's going to have way more than you have because he's shown himself to be responsible and productive and trustworthy to the master. Notice the story ends with finality, number 10, finality. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there, will, where, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You stop for a minute and you just say, wait a minute, what just happened? I don't understand. Are you saying that our Lord says that if you have a lot of material things and money and you don't use it for the master, because remember, we have to fit ourselves in the story here sometime. That's the whole point of a parable. Where do I fit in the story? Well, I'm certainly not the master, and when you recognize our Lord is teaching about future things, and the master's going to go away, and this happened right before his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then he went away on a long journey. He's coming back, both for his church and to engage with Israel. 
And the Jewish people, he's gone, he's coming back, we don't know when, I'm not the master, I'm somewhere in the spectrum of servanthood here, and the servant staff, which one am I? But wait a minute, if I don't produce with my material things, does it mean I'm going to be pitched into hell forever? Because Anytime Matthew uses this, and our Lord repeated this as well in Matthew, this idea of darkness, outer darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth can be nothing other than a literal place of torment. And by the way, there are many people involved in a lot of efforts to undermine the doctrine of a literal eternal torment. And it's not in the Bible if the English language means anything, which is accurately translated from the Greek and even the Hebrew. Do not go there. Do not, do not try to get the Bible to say something it doesn't mean. In outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, a place of wailing, at best we conclude it's a miserable place. You don't want to go there. So I don't think our conclusion is that if we don't use our money wisely, God will pitch you in hell. I think the conclusion that you need to draw from this is that evidently the third servant was a non-believer He actually kind of mocked his master even in his response. I know you're a hard man. I know you can produce where you don't even plant. Well, then don't you think you should have done something? Nah, I don't even care about my master. In fact, the master knew the heart of the guy, and it wasn't that he couldn't. It was that he was lazy. He wouldn't. He had his own agenda. He didn't care about the master's agenda. So the conclusion that I come to on this is that he is rejected because he was not one of the master's true servants, it seems to me. So there's our story. We're closer to being done than you think right now. Almost as fast as I could write then, I wrote the next eight observations about this story that I thought were important for me to get out of it, and I hope for you as well. Number one, what I got out of the story is that one thing the Lord wants me to know is that that he owns my stuff. I have a master, and he's entrusted me with material goods. All that we have and all that we are belongs to the master. I'm just a servant. That should really affect the way we look at things. Number two, I don't see how you cannot get out of the story that the master expects productivity with our stuff. Number three, good and faithful notice is equally applied to the productive servants. The focus was not on what they did with what they had. Excuse me. The focus was on what they did with what they had, not on how much they had. Did you get that? Wonderful. Excellent. Well done. Doubling up two, doubling up five, they get the exact same commendation. I think a lot of us would be more effective in living for Christ and serving Christ if we would get our mind off of everything we don't have. A lot of us are all boogered up because we're trying to get a whole bunch of stuff we don't have and we're not even using what we do have for Christ to begin with. And maybe the reason you don't have is because you haven't been effective with what you do have. Number four, faithful stewardship results in additional opportunity. 
Well, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 10. Throw out the seed and he'll fill your seed bag. The more you give, the more opportunity you will have to give. And you say, Pastor Van, you don't understand. I am such a mess. What could be a greater motivation to unmess your life than to be able to begin to serve the master and produce for your master? One of the reasons we should want to live a debt-free, organized, well-administrated life is so that God can use us and our stuff in this epoch of time in which we find ourselves. And the needs have never been greater, but the wealth of his church has never been greater. And what are we doing? And as you give, you will find the more you give, just like the guy with the five, he doubled it up and he ends up with the one. And now he has that one to go to work with. Faithfulness, number five, by definition, demands time and endurance. I want to encourage you not to become weary in well-doing. Faithfulness, by definition, listen, faithfulness, by definition, demands time and endurance. If you've been at it 45 minutes and you quit, you're not faithful. Not enough time has gone by, chronos. You got to hang in there. You got to plow. You got to live by faith. You keep your hand to the plow. You see what God's going to do. You look with 2020 vision and evaluate is this effective? And then be faithful. For God to look at you and say, Well done, good and faithful servant, you have to be faithful. And to be faithful, you've got to endure and spend time at it. Number six, the master has no patience for laziness or lame excuses. Did you get that out of the passage? I got that out of the passage loudly and clearly. The guy with the one talent goes to the master with the most lame excuse. I just kind of wanted to keep it safe, man. The master did not want to hear it. He just says, you're wicked and you're lazy. Get out of my sight. Go to outer darkness. I'm done with you. I'm done. The master does not want to hear lame excuses, nor does he tolerate laziness. Listen. Our New Testament is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians and Romans that there is a day of accountability coming for believers in the Lord Christ. The idea is it's a judgment of rewards. We call it the Bema seat. I really don't know what that's going to look like completely. I don't know if that's going to happen before every tear is wiped away in heaven. Otherwise, it seems to me there might be some tears in heaven. The timeline there, I'm not 100% sure about. It's not 100% clear in Scripture. But it is clear that King Jesus will be there and his church will be brought before him and the things that are wood, hay, and stubble will be gone. The things that are gold and silver and precious stone, there, there is a way of investing in the things that matter to the master. And it will not do to say, well, I was gonna. I was gonna. Well, you know, the master doesn't want lame excuses or laziness Notice as well, number seven, that there was absolutely no commendation for caution or lack of productivity. There was absolutely no commendation for caution 
or lack of productivity. That's what the guy with the one said, right? Hey, man, I was just being really careful. The other guys had to take some risk. My wife, Janet, read, proofreads my notes most of the time. Anytime there's a mistake is when I only do it myself. And last night, she proofed my notes. Um, and she saw that point, And she said, caution's not a good thing. She's very cautious. She's very careful. She's very thoughtful. She wants to make good decisions. Me, I'm all over the place. I would have wasted everything we had if she hadn't slowed me down. You know, I'm not talking about not being wise. Embedded in the Ephesians 5 passage is the call for wisdom. But I'm talking about the fact that sometimes we can be so cautious and so worried about what's going to happen. I mean, how much do you really need? How much do you really need to store up for the future? For, you know, I'm not saying don't have your emergency fund. No, indeedy, it's good to have that. I'm not saying you might, you, but I'm just saying, I mean, how much and when are we going to turn the course of our lives to where we're recognizing that my master wants to take my talents and I can multiply them for his use? Number eight, wasted resources and opportunities are a serious matter to the master. He said, take away that guy's stuff. Take away. He puts him in punishment. It's a very serious matter to waste what God has given us. What do we conclude? We include, we conclude this morning, I think, church, that we must embrace a life of faithful stewardship. We must embrace a life of faithful stewardship. We are here to serve our master who's gone on a long journey. His agenda is so much more valuable than any of our agendas. Who are we living for? What are we living for? And are we living in anticipation of that unknown day of accountability when our keros is over, our time is up, and have we lived this time wisely? And I think what we have to get out of the story before we go as well is to remember that the greatest resource that God ever entrusted to anyone is the gospel itself. It's the gospel. This is the pearl of great price. This is the the treasure of all treasures. Remember the story about the guy that ran, he found the treasure in the pawn shop and he runs home and he says, Mabel, she's not in the New Testament, I'm making her up. But he says to his wife, Mabel, sell everything we have because I found it. I found the treasure. The guy who was walking through the field and he found the hidden box, the hidden treasure, and he sells everything that he has to buy the land, to buy the pearl, to buy... This is the treasure. We have riches that matter a little. This matters a lot. Remember Jesus said, you've been faithful in a little. Now let's be faithful in a lot. Our stewardship of the gospel, our stewardship of the promotion of our master's agenda. Make no mistake, make sure you do not understand that I think that you can get to heaven by spending money wisely. We are only saved by grace through faith in Christ alone in the shed blood of Christ. But once that happens, we will care about the master's agenda. Well, let's stand and let's bow our heads before the Lord. And I wonder if you're ready to embrace a life of stewardship.
A steward is someone who's responsible for someone else's things. I think that this message in this year, and as we check our vision for 2020, we ought to now begin to see everything differently. What do I have that God can use? How can I take what I have and multiply it for the, for the cause of his church, for the cause of his greater kingdom? When I look at my garage, I look at my basement, I look at my yard, I look at my camp, I look at my hunting camp, I look at my boats, I, everything I have is God's. It's the master's. Will you ask God right now as we check our vision to help you be a steward that does excellent, wonderful work and is commended with well done? Father, please help us live. We, we live in a really distorted world. It's hard for us to understand what is of true value in this world. We have a hard time understanding how much is enough. Uh, We have a hard time controlling our spending. We love to enjoy things and, and all these things in many ways were given to us to enjoy. But Father, would you help us to buy into the faithful steward mindset and that we only have a window of time and it's an uncertain window and and our, we will stand before you, our master, and our master, the Lord Jesus, and give an account. So help us to live wisely and redeem the time as the Apostle Paul challenged us. Accomplish your purpose through your church. Prod us now with this story throughout the week as we meditate upon it through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, we ask these things, asking for your blessing for another day, another week, should you tarry. Amen. Amen.